Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. I'm going to finish off the series today. We've been working through a series called uh, Old Te- uh, Answering Tough Questions in the Old Testament. And uh, so we're going to finish it off today. We've uh, t- tackled lots of tough topics from the Old Testament We've tackled, does the Old Testament promote slavery? Does the Old Testament promote genocide? We've talked about the different laws in the Old Testament, uh, different things, right? And last week, we tackled the, the subject of women in the Old Testament. Is, is God harsh towards women in the Old Testament? All those things. And, uh, and so why have we been doing this series, or why have we done this series? A uh, couple of reasons. First of all, it's to give us confidence. Many people don't know how to answer the critics increasingly in our culture, the attacks on our faith are coming because of the Old Testament. People say, you Christians are hypocrites, the Bible is barbaric, and they attack some of these passages in the Old Testament. But it's not just for helping us answer the questions of critics. I think there's even a bigger reason, and that is answering our own self-doubts. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people, as we read the Old Testament, we read some of these passages, and we, we don't understand them. I mean, this, this book, many of these passages are over 3,000 years old. And so we read them, and we go, how can God be good? What does this mean? And some of those passages can create doubts inside of us. Another reason I've been doing this series, or maybe the biggest reason I've been doing this series, is not because of the critics out there, but is more the doubt and the critics inside of us. I really hope that we can read the Old Testament with confidence after this series, knowing that God is good. And that brings up a third reason, which is Jesus said in in the book of Matthew, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, uh, and the Old Testament, he was specifically talking about the Old Testament. Of course, that includes the New Testament now as well, but, um, but that includes the Old Testament. We need the Old Testament. It's God's Word. And so I hope that through this series, I've increased our understanding, uh, not just because of what you're going to get or the messages themselves, but so that you will now have a desire to get into God's Word for yourself. And if that happens in this series, I'll be uh, really pleased. That'll, that'll be a really good thing for all of us. So... Um, what are we going to tackle, tackle today? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I showed you uh, a meme, an atheist meme that had been making its rounds on, on Facebook that somebody sent to me. And, uh, t- and I read that to you. That I'm going to read it to you again now just because I'm, I'm going to tackle one of, the, one of the accusations on this meme. But uh, on this meme, it says, again, if your religion promotes killing non-believers, beating women, punishing rape victims, all that. And many of these we've now answered, actually, in this series. And it says, you're not praying to the God above, you're praying to the one below, and then it says, read your Bible. And then one of the accusations there is that uh, the Bible, uh, the Old Testament teaches that we need to kill uh, unbelievers. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at some of the harsh penalties, or the seemingly harsh penalties in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at this thing of, does the Bible teach that we need to put to death unbelievers? So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into Deuteronomy 17, which is named up there, and we'll get into this message. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. And we have many different people here, from young to old, uh, men and women, girls and boys, Lord Jesus. And my whole desire to this message is that we will have a greater understanding of your word so that we will desire to eat it, so we will be fed and we will be discipled as we get into your word. Because as you said, Jesus, we need your word for life, for spiritual life. So give us understanding about the Old Testament so we can read it and be discipled, that we can read it and we can fall in love with you. Give us understanding today, Lord Jesus, that we can know, that we can be confident as we read through your word. We can be utterly, absolutely confident that you are good and you are just and you are merciful and you are holy in all things. So I just pray that you would help me to do those things by your Holy Spirit today and you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, let's start by reading Deuteronomy 17, which the, uh, the atheists uh, there who made that meme um, have there on their little thing there is uh, Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 2. We'll read a few verses here to verse 5. If there is found among you, it says, within any of your towns, this is one of uh, the laws God gave to the Israelites, that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden. And it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Okay? And so, of course, that does seem, again, 3,000 plus years later, we read this, and it seems very harsh to us. Okay? It seems really harsh. So someone decides to follow another God, and you stone them to death. What are we to do with that? We read this in our devotions. How do we apply that today in the New Testament? Again, it's many passages like this, and a church having no understanding has led Christians to ignore the Old Testament, which Jesus said we need because we have to feed on every word that comes from God's mouth. So how do we apply this today? What does it mean? And then it raises other questions too, such as, should we as Christians be in support of freedom of religion? Like we look here in the Old Testament, and when God gave Israel these laws, is the, the nation of Israel did not have freedom of religion. Okay, that's clear from this. You can't get less free than this. In Old Testament Israel, you worship the God of the Hebrew, you worship Yahweh, the God who rescued them from Israel, or, or, or nothing, okay? That was the only option. So they didn't have freedom of religion. So here we live in Canada today, and one of the, one of the values we cherish is freedom of religion. How do, we pull those, how do we bring those two things together? What is the Bible teaching us here today? Would God prefer? I mean, it raises other questions in our head. Does, does God want us as Christians to advocate for the death penalty here in Canada for things like uh, people not believing in him? And of course, for those of you who are new, before you run out of the doors and spread some, some very nasty rumors about me and about this church, obviously the answer is no. But I want to I work you through why it's no, so that we'll understand a little bit more about what's going on in the Old Testament um, and that we'll understand God's heart in all of this and how it applies to us in the New Testament today. But for sure, if you were to ask Moses today, if we could put Moses on this stage, and you, we would say, look, Moses, what you wrote up there. That's, you wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Are you saying that this is, law should be applied in Canada today? And he would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's not intended for Canada today. You'd say, and then we could say to Moses, well, Moses, Why? Why would you write it down for Old Testament Israel? What was God's plan? Why would that law have been given to Israel then, but you would say that it absolutely should not, should not apply to any other nation in history, okay? And so now I want to give you a little piece of the story that's really important as you read the entire Old Testament, that it, it'll help you to open things up. Because the thing you have to understand about a law like this is that you need, you need to know that the, these laws were given in the context of a unique situation in history, okay? The nation of Israel was unique, in the Old Testament was unique in all of history in that they are the only nation in history that has ever made a covenant and in essence gotten married to God, okay? God has never made a covenant like that with any other nation in all of history and God has not wanted to make a covenant like that with any other nation in history. He now works through the church, okay? But the nation of Israel, unique in history, actually made a covenant and actually, in essence, got married to God. Now, of course, when you get married, I'm going to show you a bunch of passages in just a moment, but I want you to notice the difference, okay? 
there's a difference, and those of you who are married know this, well, everybody knows this, but some, when you get married, there's, there's, some, there's some changes that happen. For example, uh, if I had not married my wife, LaDawn, my life would be very different today, very different today, and hers would too. For example, uh, assuming she hadn't married someone else, she, her last name would still be Letkeman, she'd be LaDawn Letkeman. Um, but if we did not marry, she could date other people, she could flirt with other people, and it would be no offense to me, okay? Um, because we're not married, okay? But the day we got married, well, starting actually when we were dating, uh, but, but the day we got married, something happened, okay? Because we did get married. If we weren't married, you know, you, she could be sitting in the, in the auditorium here today with, with one of you guys, and it wouldn't bother me. But we are married, and so if one of you guys would ask her out on a date, I would have a problem with that. <laughs> right? Now, th- this seems a bit obvious, but the thing is, the atheists put up a meme there and say, look it, God commanded the Israelites to put to death unbelievers. How harsh is that? And they think that it's teaching that we should today, but here's the, the, the difference. When, you're, when God is married to a nation, that's different than when God's not married to a nation, is it not? Just like it's different when I married LaDon, we made covenant with each other, faithful to you and you alone until death parts us. That means there's no, you know, flirting or playing around with other people. Okay, very important. Well, the same exact thing happened in the Old Testament is Israel married God. And I'll just show you a couple of passages. This is a huge theme throughout the Old Testament. You have to remember this. This is why some people just think, well, how come we can't take all the laws that were given to Old Testament Israel and just plant them in today? Because the situation is different. No other nation has ever been married to God. Israel was married to God. But this is a huge theme. There's literally probably hundreds of verses in the Old Testament. I'll just show you a couple. But before God even rescued Israel out of Egypt, he said, this is why I'm rescuing you. I want a very special relationship with you. We see this in Exodus chapter 6. God says to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, this is while they're still in slavery in Egypt, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from, the bur- from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. So there's this exclusivity. I'm going to rescue you because I want you to be my people and I want to be your God. Okay? Um, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then after that, in the rest of the Old Testament, the language used of the relationship between God and Israel is marriage, marriage, marriage. And I'll just show you one example, but I could show you many, many, many. Uh, for example, Isaiah 54, verse 5, God says this to the prophet Isaiah, for your maker is your husband. I mean, just think of that for just a moment. The maker of the universe married a nation. Okay, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. So uh, when they made a covenant together, the whole point of when I get married is I'm going to be faithful to you and you alone. And the same was true when God made a covenant with Israel. He said, now, I am the only God you can have. If we make this covenant, it's me and me, it's me, and me alone. Okay. Now you say, now people look at some of those laws and they say, that's so harsh, you would put to death uh, anybody who's worshiping idols. Here's the thing you have to understand. God did not force this on them. They absolutely knew what they were getting into. He did not force them into a covenant. He asked them into a covenant and they said yes. Okay? And I'm going to show you just a moment this, but this changes the perspective of everything. See, it's easy for an atheist to pull passage out of context now or for us to read in our devotions and not think of the context and go, wow, this looks so harsh. But what you have to understand is God did not force these rules on them. He invited them into it and they said yes. So think about this now. 
Uh, all of the people who make a covenant. So the people of Israel, God rescues them out of Egypt. And all these people see these massive plagues. They see these huge miracles. The water turns to blood and the land goes dark and, you know, hail and all these different, the 10 plagues. They see these things. There's not a single atheist in all of Israel. And then God brings them out and walks them through the middle of the Red Sea. And if there had been even a half an atheist left in Israel, he was gone after that, Okay because they just walked right through and it was dry. And then they walked up to Mount Sinai in the desert and God came down and the earth was shaking and there was smoke and fire and they literally heard the voice of God in the thunder. And they, it says that the people trembled. They all knew who God was. And now from there, God invites them. And now we read the story. God invites them into a covenant with him. And he tells them exactly what the covenant means. He tells them what this means is you're not allowed. If you, if you say yes, you're not allowed to worship any other gods. And the penalty will be death. I'll show you this. So Exodus 24, they're at the base of the mountain. And, now, and Moses has gone up. And now he's coming down. So verse 3, okay. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Okay. So notice this. Is God forcing this on them? No. He tells them everything. He, they know. They know if we worship another God after this point, it's going to be the death penalty. They know what they're getting into. Okay? And what do they say? And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they're going to ratify the covenant with blood. They're entering into this because they want to. God said, I'll be your God. I'm the one who rescued you. And I will bless you and I'll protect you. And in exchange, I'll be, like, it's, it's, a, it's an exclusive relationship. Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he sent the young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the butt. Now look, he's going to make doubly and triply sure that they know exactly what they're getting into. So then he took the, butt of the, uh, the, the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So he reads it to them again. Okay? And now look what they say again. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, this has to change our perspective of the penalties in the Old Testament. Rather than viewing them as harsh, God has imposed these on the Israelites. We have to recognize that all of the penalties in the Old Testament, the Israelites agreed to when they willingly went into a covenant with God. They said, we want you to be our God. We want to be under your protection and blessing. And God says, now the thing you have to understand is I'm a holy God. So if I'm going to be married to a nation, that nation's got to have some laws that reflect my holiness and the, exclus and the exclusivity of this relationship. Does that make sense? Just like in a marriage, I willingly enter into it and now... I'm bound by it, okay? I'm bound to be faithful to my wife. My wife is bound to be faithful to me because we made, we made this, this uh, commitment, okay? And that's why the penalty for worshiping idols was so strict in Old Testament Israel. Now, again, I know the objection that some Christians have. Well, I just, I don't like it. it it's because some people are like, I, it feels messy. The Old Testament feels messy to me. Like, like, it should just be all or nothing. It should just be either all the laws apply or all the laws don't apply. I don't like this that, you know, some of these things are exclusive just to Israel. And really what a lot of us would like is, I really wish instead of giving us this book, I wish God had, had emailed us from heaven a sterile two-page document with a list of all the things you have to believe and all the do's and don'ts. 
I think that's what a lot of Christians actually want. Like, Chris, I, I, why do we have to know the story and, and, and make sense of things? Why can't it just make sense right up front? Like, the fact that he did it through a story is exactly why these atheists have fodder to attack us and why, you know, Satan has fodder to plant doubts in our minds uh, when we're reading our Bibles. Why didn't God just send us a little two-page document with, you know, here's the doctrines you got to believe, here's right and wrong, okay? And the fact of the matter is, I'm, we should all be glad that God doesn't work that way because he isn't cold and sterile. He works through relationship. He's a relational God. And throughout history, this is what the Bible shows us. God always, he doesn't work from a distance. Here's a list of doctrines, go to it. He always works through specific people, specific points in time. He just loves human beings. So yes, it'd be a lot neater if we just had a two-page document, here's what you've got to believe and here's what you don't have to believe, if we didn't have to work through all the messiness of a story that's thousands of years old. But actually, the fact of the matter is, it's because he's relational and he's not embarrassed of it and it's just how he works. He chose to work through a particular nation 3,000 years ago in bringing about this story in the Messiah Jesus. And as a result, it's our joy now to learn about him and seek him in the pages of that story. And yes, it is messy, just like our lives today are messy. Isn't it true? And his work in our lives today is also messy, okay? So that's why there was a death penalty for idolatry in Old Testament Israel, which if Moses was here right now today, he would say absolutely that not. That does not apply in any other nation in the world because no other nation has entered into a covenant like that with God, and neither has God wanted that. That was part, that was a one-time unique situation. God has made that forever covenant with Israel. He still has a covenant with them, and he's going to win them all to him before the end, but... But he has made that covenant in order to bring the Messiah about. Now, but another question might come up, and that is, okay, so, um, fine, you know, there's the death penalty for, for worshiping idols, which I get from the covenant, but there's this sort of this idea that the Old Testament is still harsh. Even if we take out the idolatry thing, a lot of us, and certainly our culture, have this idea that the Old Testament is just super harsh on all crime. Like, there's this, we, we kind of have this feeling like, if I get into this Old Testament, I really read through it, I'm going to find people are getting put to death for all kinds of things. Because in the Old Testament, God was super harsh on sin. And now in the New Testament, we have this idea, God is nicer about sin. We really, practically speaking, have, an, have the idea that God changed from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Okay. And so before we even look at the rest of some of the other death penalties and stuff that are in the Old Testament, I have to correct a misconception. And part of what I've been doing in this series is also correcting tone. It's not just correcting people's misunderstandings of the story itself, it's correcting people's misunderstandings of what the tone is of the Old Testament. Because tone is everything. When you listen to someone, the same thing can be said two different ways and it can mean radically different things based on the tone. The same is true of the Old Testament. People have this idea in the Old Testament God was really harsh on sin. So let me correct that misconception. In the Old Testament, God was not harsh on sin. In fact, the goal of Old Testament law was to be fair, not harsh. Okay, I'm going to show you that. The goal of the Old Testament law was actually to be fair, not harsh. And actually, the Old Testament was radical in that the Old Testament introduced to the human race a radical concept about criminal penalties and, pun and punishments. The Old Testament introduced to the world the concept that the punishment should fit the crime. Okay, I'm going I'm to show you that. But the Old Testament actually introduced to the human race the idea that the punishment should fit the crime, which is not, has not been a given in human nations throughout history. Okay? So for example, let me just use a civilized nation as an example. 
18th and 19th century Great Britain would be considered one of the great empires of the world, and it's a modern, more of a modern-day nation, obviously, and considered very civilized, okay? Um, 18th and 19th century Great Britain had the death penalty for 220 different crimes, okay? This is a civilized nation. They had the death, you say, how can you even have 220 different crimes, okay? Uh, 18th and 19th century Great Britain gave the death penalty to people for things like pickpocketing, shoplifting, if your face was painted black while committing any kind of a crime, that was a death penalty, okay? They had the death penalty, and I'm not joking about any of this stuff. I'm, this is not being made up here. The, they had the death penalty for counterfeiting stamps and strong evidence of malice in a child aged 7 to 14 years of age, okay? Those were all death penalties in, in the civilized nation of Great Britain in 18th and 19th centuries, okay? And so they, would, they had different punishments like uh, you know, for certain offenses where they would tie your one arm to a horse and they would tie another arm to another horse and a leg to another horse and another one. It was called drawn and quartering and they would literally pull people's limbs off. This was a civilized nation for various petty crimes, okay? There was absolutely no proportionality throughout much of history. Many nations have punished criminals. The goal has not been to make the punishment fit the crime. The goal has been to terrorize your subjects so that they don't do anything you don't want them to do. And the same was true in the ancient Middle East around the time of, of Old Testament Israel. The ancient Babylonians were famous for having very just laws. They had the death penalty for things like stealing from a temple or hiding a runaway slave, okay? I mean, you even look, there's certain Muslim countries today that have a law, if you steal something, they chop your hand off. So if you're hungry for a piece of bread and you steal a loaf of bread, then you get caught, you can have your hand chopped off. Did you know that in the Old Testament, that was absolutely forbidden. The Old Testament introduced a radical new idea to the human race, and that was that the punishment should fit the crime. And what the Old Testament called it was eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Which today, we read eye for eye and tooth for tooth, and think, wow, was God harsh. That's harsh? All that means is, if you hurt someone's tooth, you don't get your head chopped off. You get paid back tooth for tooth. That's what it means. It means if you steal a sheep, you don't get body parts pulled off. You pay back sheep. That's what eye for eye and tooth for tooth means. Okay? Radically just and fair. God's goal in the Old Testament, the tone of the Old Testament is not terrorize people and be super harsh on sin. The goal of the Old Testament law was actually to be fair. To be fair and to be just. I'll just show you a couple of passages. Let me show you uh, one of the eye for eye and tooth for tooth passages. Deuteronomy chapter 19, and then we're going to come back a little bit to the, to the death penalty, and then we're going to tie that in with the New Testament, how this all applies to us today. But Deuteronomy chapter 19, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. This is the theme of the whole Old Testament law. Is that a crime goes to court, and how the court punishes is, you know, someone does something, they don't go to prison for 25 years, okay? They get, uh, they get a, a sentence that is commensurate with what they've done. So if that's what he tried to do, you do the same to him. That's what the courts are supposed to do. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And then that's the ethic that underlies all of the Old Testament law. Now I want you to notice how simple that ethic is. 
We've got criminal law books now that are, you know, I don't know, thousands of pages for hundreds of pages, but just the criminal code is gigantic, okay? God in his infinite wisdom gave them eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and it does two things. First of all, it ensures that crimes are not underpunished, that there's actually justice. We don't always get justice in our society today. It ensures that crimes are not underpunished, and it also ensures that people are not overpunished. The point of the Old Testament law was justness and fairness, okay? Let me show you Exodus chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, now remember, in many nations around Old Testament Israel, or if you were in Great Britain in the 18th or 19th centuries, in many uh, nations throughout history, uh, you, you steal a sheep or something, who knows what's going to happen to you, but you could die. If you stole someone wealthy, in Babylon, it was all about if you, if you hurt someone that was a higher social status than you, then you got severe punishments, regardless of how petty the crime was. But in the Old Testament, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he repays five ox for an ox. So you pay back ox for ox, sheep for sheep. And four sheep for a sheep. There's no dismembering. There's no killing. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. So if your animal gets loose and wrecks someone's garden, then you pay back from your garden. You burn down someone's barn, you build them a new barn. That's just, it's actually fair, right? If fire breaks out and catches in the thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. So that's the first thing. I just had to correct a misconception. We're going to look at some more of the death penalty thing in just a second, but I had to correct a misconception. The tone of the Old Testament is not be harsh and terrorize people into not sitting. The goal of the Old Testament was God said to the courts, to the judges, he said, you will be fair. And there are nations today that underpunish. There's been many nations throughout history that have overpunished. It's always kind of nations go to both ends of the extreme. In the Old Testament, God said, I want you to be just. I want you to be just. And of course, now that does mean if someone takes a life in Old Testament Israel, it was life for life. So they did have the death penalty. But there is, now some people will say, but there was a death penalty in the Old Testament for stuff that wasn't murder. Okay, for example, Leviticus 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So people say, well, okay, you just said the life for life, eye for eye thing, but here we see this one seems disproportionate, um, is that we did have the death, they did have the death penalty for some things that weren't taking of a life, okay? And so there's this idea, again, it creeps in, the Old Testament's harsh. So I just want to show you, we're just going to confront this thing head on. I'll teach you something right here in the next few minutes, okay? I'm going to put up on the screen every single thing you could get the death penalty for in the Old Testament, all right? You don't need to write this all down. If, I mean, if you want to remember, you can take a picture. I can email this to you as well. But in the Old Testament, they had the death penalty for exactly 15 crimes, okay? And here they are. Adultery, uh, bestiality, blasphemy, false prophecy. Now, the false prophecy thing there wasn't like you heard something in listening prayer and, and just got it a little wrong, death, no. Okay, it wasn't like, I got a word from you, for you, blah, blah, you know, I think this or that, and it doesn't turn out to be true, death, no. It's time false prophecy, or it's time of people who are, who are false prophets, were people who are leading people away from the true God to worship idols. That's what it was. So it all had to do with idolatry. Uh, homosexuality was a death penalty. Human sacrifice was a death penalty. Incest was a death penalty. Kidnapping, magic and divination, murder, rape, Profaning the Sabbath, sacrificing idols, striking and cursing parents had to do with where a, a young adult was, would be so, so off the rails, so rebellious, and they were literally threatening their parents' lives. That was the death penalty. 
and unchastity, okay? So that's the 15 things. Now, I want you to notice up there, first of all, that there's no petty crime, okay? There's no, uh, it's, if you broke one of the food laws, it was not the death penalty. Uh, if you broke some sacrificial law, it wasn't the death penalty. If you stole something, it was not the death penalty. Basically, in Old Testament Israel, the death penalty was reserved for three categories. You can basically group these 15 into three categories, okay? And this is, this is going to be important because you'll see these categories pop up again in the New Testament, okay? So if we go to the next screen there, Tammy, thank you. Basically, the death penalty was used for three categories in the Old Testament. Worshiping idols, blaspheming God. So we've dealt with that one already because they'd entered into a covenant with him. Sexual immorality, it's true. And then extreme violence. So the extreme violence, that's the eye for eye, tooth for tooth ones. Murder, kidnapping, and rape uh, got you the death penalty in the Old Testament. Okay? But then as well, sexual, uh, sexual immorality. Now, I, I do need to say something here again because, again, as Christians, we do not advocate... These are criminal penalties that apply to the nation of Israel. The church is not a nation. So the church is not, that God has not given to the church to enforce laws. That's for the government. We don't advocate. It's, it was a different situation because they were married together. And here's th another thing you have to understand. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that the closer you get to God, the steeper the price for sin. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. And what was the price? All they did was eat one fruit out of the garden, death comes on the human race, right? The closer you are to God, the quicker the retribution for sin. In Old Testament, like now, people, because sometimes we just think, well, God's changed now. No, he hasn't changed. There's still judgment for sin, and the wages of sin is death. But because his glory isn't imminently present in our midst, we don't die right away. We'll still face him on judgment someday, judgment day. But in Old Testament Israel, for example, if the priest went into the Holy of Holies, if he did one little thing wrong in the, Old Test in the Holy of Holies, he would drop dead. Okay? So the closer you are to the proximity of God, the more the holiness. So when God married Israel, he said, I want to live in your midst. So we see here sexual immorality actually matters to God, doesn't it? It actually matters to him. And when you get close to God, it's one of the serious sins that God says, actually, you can't be near me. But this does not mean, again, God was in the midst of Israel and he married them. This does not mean we would ever advocate for any kind of criminal penalties against those sorts of things today in our context. But does that make sense? Proximity and God's holiness uh, had a huge deal. But here's the other thing you have to understand now. So now I want to say something else. So that was the death penalty boiled down to basically three things in the Old Testament. But now you have to see God's mercy because this is the part that a lot of people just overlook in the Old Testament. They think God was harsh. I've been showing you all along he wasn't harsh. The goal was to be fair. But do you know that even in God's justness and fairness, he built mercy into the Old Testament penal system, okay? He built mercy in. I'm gonna show you two things. Did you know that heart, actually, hardly anyone in Old Testament Israel ever got put to death for the death penalty? Did you know that? And I'll show you two reasons why, okay? So people have this idea, it's so harsh. Actually, almost no one, very few people ever actually got the death penalty in Old, in Old Testament Israel. I'll show you why. First thing is that the Old Testament was very strict that nobody could be charged with any offense unless there was at least two or three witnesses. Okay? Let me show you this. Deuteronomy chapter 19, 15, and this is repeated throughout the Old Testament law again and again and again. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. By the way, this was radical too. It, I mean, throughout history, uh, most legal systems have not protected, uh, you know, people who've been accused of something like this. A single witness. You couldn't, be, you couldn't be convicted in Old Testament Israel by DNA evidence or fingerprint evidence. 
A, a single witness wouldn't do it for any crime, for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, okay? Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses can anybody, you'd have to have a lead. So in Old Testament Israel, it doesn't matter how small the offense, doesn't matter how big the offense, nobody could be convicted of anything without at least two or three witnesses. Now, this would have a massive effect on how many people actually get the death penalty. You ever think of that? I showed you those three categories there, idolatry, uh, extreme violence, and sexual immorality. Let's look at sexual immorality for just a moment, okay? Almost by definition, adultery and things like that, are they committed in public or they are, are they committed in private? Private, for the most part. Which means that in the cases of sexual immorality, almost no one would ever be seen by two or three or more witnesses. Which means that almost nobody in Old Testament Israel could ever get the death penalty for sexual immorality. God shows us in his holiness, this is what it deserves, but actually in practice, almost nobody ever got it. In fact, the only cases that would ever have gotten the, old, the, the death penalty in the Old Testament would have been the most brazen, rebellious, public flauntings of God's law. The private ones would not have gotten the death penalty. Okay? That's the first thing you have to understand about the, the Old Testament law, is God was not trying to just kill a bunch of people off. He wasn't trying to be harsh. He was actually being fair. There's a second thing, though, you have to understand, that God built right into the system that almost nobody pays attention to, and it's what's called a ransom. It's called a ransom. Okay? In the Old Testament law, and people don't realize, they say, oh, the Old Testament's so harsh. Actually, God put this thing in the Old Testament law and said, instead of the death penalty, unless it's a super, super bad case, Instead of the judge imposing the death penalty on a person, he could just impose a ransom on the person and the person's life would be redeemed after they paid a very substantial fine. Okay? I'll show you an example of this. Okay? Uh, this is from Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, starting in verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Okay? So when a dog bites a person, oh, no, 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 that's, we're talking about oxes here. That's right. Okay, so verse 29. Let's not bring this too close to home. Uh, but verse 29. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past. Okay, so the first one is uh, you own an ox. He gets out and he, and he pokes someone with his horns. Okay, well, the owner didn't know that, so you don't kill the owner for that. Okay, he, he'd have to pay restitution, but that's a different passage. We won't go there. Verse 29. If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or woman. So now he should know better. So his ox got out once and hurt someone, but he did not take steps to either kill the ox himself or make sure this thing doesn't get out and hurt someone again. And now it, now it kills someone again. If that happens, the ox will be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. So this is an example. If we put this in modern times, this is just an example. It's not premeditated murder, but it's recklessness that leads to someone dying, like a drunk driver today who kills someone. Okay? It's not premeditated murder, but they should not have been drinking and driving, and now because of their drinking and driving, they killed someone. The Old Testament law says that's a very serious thing. In your recklessness, you have killed someone. Okay? But now look at the mercy built into the system for the guilty offender. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he, he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. So in other words, what would happen is the judge could look at it and say, yes, you should have known better. He really should have. But unless it was like a blatant, 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 terrible repeat, repeat offender, 
The death penalty actually wouldn't be imposed. There was actually mercy built in the system. This was true of all 15 of the death penalty crimes except one. The only one you couldn't ransom was premeditated murder. And I'll just show you that briefly, and then we're going to move to the New Testament to finish this message. But Numbers 35, 30 to 31. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So that's repeated again. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer. So the only... The only crime of those 15 I showed you that where you could not be ransomed was premeditated murder. But the rest of them, you see the mercy built into the system. You had to have two or three witnesses. And furthermore, in most cases, the judges would impose a ransom instead of actually taking the life. Now, remember, remember that back in those days, you, you, the, one of the things you have to remember about the, one of the challenges of justice back then is they didn't have the... They didn't have the, the, the capacity, they didn't have the resources to build huge prisons and keep people in prison for years. So they didn't have a lot of options. How do you punish people back then? They didn't have build jails and pay guards to spend their whole lives guarding, keeping people in the prison. So you didn't have a lot of options for punishing crime. You basically had the death penalty for the serious ones and then you had fines or hard work or something like that because the Old Testament wouldn't go to the maiming thing that many nations did. Okay, so you see in this system, you see the mercy of God. He's being fair, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and yet giving mercy and leniency to the criminal. But now I want to give you an even different perspective. And I want us to finish this series off in the New Testament. Because we've been so used to looking at the Old Testament as harsh. We've been so used to seeing and just accepting what our culture says and saying the Old Testament is harsh. God is harsh on sin in the Old Testament. And it's kind of gotten into our hearts and our minds, our subconscious, that God is harsh on sin in the Old Testament, but he's easier on sin in the New Testament. That I thought it would be good to ask the question, what does the New Testament think of the Old Testament? You ever ask yourself that question? Like, what does the New Testament, if we were, if we, if we were to get the New Testament writers up here on stage, and we would say to Paul and John and, and the gospel writers and Peter, and we would say, what do you guys, I mean, our culture, we think the Old Testament law is super harsh. Like, we think those penalties are just severe. You guys are the New Testament, and, and as a church, a lot of churches nowadays basically throw out the Old Testament so they can be in the New Testament. They say, it's too harsh, that's why I'm in the New. It'd be really good for us to talk to the New Testament authors then, who we say we follow, and say, what do you guys think of the Old Testament penalties? Wouldn't that be a good question to ask? It would be a good question to ask. And you know what the really cool thing is? Actually, the New Testament writers do talk about the penalties in the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews is a wonderful book where the writer of Hebrews compares the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, okay? And he says something really fascinating. Hebrews chapter 2, he says something absolutely fascinating about the penalties and the stories in the Old Testament, okay? And this is what he says. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and now speaking of the Old Testament, he's comparing the new and the old, and every transgression or disobedience received a what? A harsh retribution? An unfair retribution? Remember, this is the New Testament. We're, and we're a church. I mean, the New Testament, right? So what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament criminal penalties? It says every transgression or disobedience did not receive a harsh retribution, it received a just retri uh, retribution. 
And he's talking in there about all the criminal penalties of the Old Testament. He's also talking in there about every story where God judged the Israelites for disobedience, whether it be with plagues or exile or whatever it is. He's talking about all those stories of judgment in the Old Testament. He says they're not harsh and they're not unfair. They're actually just. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Now, how can that be? How can it be that the New Testament writers look at the Old Testament and they have no problem with it? They say, absolutely, that was fair, that was merciful, that was loving and just. And that we can look at the Old Testament today and it just looks harsh and it's just not nice. And why was God like that? And I'll tell you why there's a difference. And, I'll, and also, we know who's right because the New Testament writers were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So they're right and our culture is wrong. There's no question about that. So how do we get here? Well, I've talked about this a couple of times now towards the end of the messages in the last couple of messages of the series because I just feel like it's a point God's trying to get across to us. And that is, in our culture today, we've lost our awe of the holiness of God and we've lost all perspective of how wicked sin is. We've just lost it. So now we look, how dare God put people to death for that? Rather than, oh my goodness, God's mercy that he doesn't kill us all. See, we have this idea... This is where a lot of people, practically speaking, if we wouldn't say it, a lot of people in the church say, practically speaking, this is what we think the, de- the, the, the cross of Christ did. We think that when Jesus died on the cross, he made sin less bad. That's really what we think. In the Old Testament, God was mad at sin, and now because Jesus died on the cross, he's not as mad at sin. And that is not what Jesus did. Jesus did not make sin less bad when he died on the cross. He provided forgiveness for us from those horrible, wicked sins. And they're still just as wicked and horrible. And you know what? Those Christians who harbor resentment against God because of how harsh they feel God is in the Old Testament, really deep down, harbor a resentment against God that continues on today because what do you think God is going to do to sin on Judgment Day? What do you think God's going to do to sin on Judgment Day? You think it's going to be different in the Old Testament? You think God changed? In the Old Testament, he judged sin. In the New Testament, Jesus died on the cross, so now he doesn't care about sin. And on Judgment Day, he's just going to be a nice guy and slap everybody on the back and, didn't matter how you lived, welcome to heaven. Didn't matter how you lived, welcome to heaven. You think that's what's going to happen on Judgment Day? It's not what's going to happen on Judgment Day. If you harbor resentment, any Christian or church that harbors resentment against God for the penalties in the Old Testament, ultimately harbors resentment against God today because how he was in the Old Testament is no different than how he's going to be on Judgment Day. The only difference is, if you have received Christ in your life, then he has forgiven you. The sin isn't less bad, he's forgiven you. But those who do not have Christ will be judged. And this is why, throughout the New Testament, any of the sins or categories of sin that the Old Testament states were serious, any of the moral law, the New Testament repeats in the New Testament and says, these are still serious today. And I could show you I could show you dozens and dozens of passages. I'll just take you through a couple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says this to us as believers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. Remember I showed you three categories of crimes in the Old Testament that were worthy of the death penalty? He nails two of them right here. Sexual immorality and idolatry. Okay? Nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know what that is? That's the New Testament equivalent of the death penalty. In the Old Testament, God married a nation, so he made the nation enforce the death penalty. 
Now the church, we're not a government. There's no enforcing the death penalty now. So the death penalty isn't enforced by man. It's enforced by God on judgment day. Anybody who, who lives out these sins, God says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means they will be cast into hell. That's the New Testament death penalty. It's just not enforced by men anymore. The New Testament is not easier on sin than the old. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's writing this letter to the church of Corinth. There's a man in the church who's blatantly living in sexual immorality and sin. He's living in it unrepentantly. Paul says, kick that man out of the fellowship of the church. He has no place in the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie blatantly to the church. And remember I said proximity to God means there's a quicker judgment reaction. Right when the Holy Spirit was powerfully moving in the church, Ananias and Sapphira tell a blatant lie in the early church. And what happens? God strikes them both dead right there. That's the New Testament. Revelation chapter Two, Jesus speaking. This is Jesus himself who hung on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave is now decades later giving a message to a New Testament church. And this is what he says. And the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? So remember, this is not the Old Testament now. This is the new. This is Jesus himself speaking. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. There was a woman in the church who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. Now notice the two categories again. Same Two, that we saw the death penalty categories in the Old Testament. Seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Still serious in the, in the New Testament. I gave her time to repent. Isn't Jesus good? Doesn't matter how wicked you are, how wicked we are, he always gives us time to repent. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery, he's speaking of Christians here in the church, with her, I will throw into great tribulation. You don't think God's still in the, in, in, the, in the business of judging sin? I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, some of you are sitting there and you go, oh, Chris, you're finishing off this Old Testament series with such a condemning message. That's maybe what some of you are thinking right now. Have you noticed here, all I've been doing to you is reading you the New Testament? I just read you the words of Jesus. I didn't preach that message. Jesus did. And anybody who tells you that's a condemning message, it's because they're not paying attention to God's word. That's what God says. Now, some of you might be sitting there and you're feeling, I struggle with some of those things. I struggle with sexual immorality. I struggle with this. I struggle with that. Jesus is not mad at weakness. He is incredibly tender towards weakness. Absolutely incredibly tender towards weakness. But what the writer of Hebrews said there is he said, lest we drift away. What he's talking about here is there is a drift in the church not to struggle against sin, but to accept sin. To say, this is who I am. I'm going to live it out. This is who I am. This is how I want to live. This is what's going to make me happy is sleeping around on my spouse. This is what's going to make me happy. So that's what I'm going to do. That kind of living, there is not grace for. Jesus says, I will judge it just like I did before. Struggling with sin for years and years and years and just weakness. And I, I wish I didn't have this weakness. Jesus is incredibly tender. He loves to forgive. He loves to forgive weakness. He loves to walk with us in weakness. But the church must never compromise on sin. Isn't that true? The church must always be a beacon. God hasn't changed since the Old Testament to say, actually, sin is sin. Is it loving to tell, to tell our culture that it's okay to do things that will destroy people's souls? That's not loving. 
Jesus still hates sin. He is incredibly tender towards our weaknesses, but he hates sin and he will not allow us to embrace sin. So, but let me finish on a good note. Can I finish on a good note? Let's finish on a good note. All right. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6 because I, I left out a verse and I want to read it to you and that'll be the end of this series. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, so I'll read these first couple parts briefly again, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then the next verse. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. You don't identify yourself by those things. You might still struggle with those things. But Jesus is helping you out of them. You don't identify that way anymore. Such were some of you. You're not embracing those things anymore. Such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? So we're going to stand strong as a church against sin, but we're going to be gracious to, to, our, to ourselves and to each other as we struggle with it. Amen? So this Tuesday is the prayer summit. That's the weekly challenge. Whenever there's a prayer summit, that's my weekly challenge because this is what the church is called to do is pray, and this is how we're going to change our lives. But I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and we're just going to pray to God and thank him for what he's spoken to us in this series on the Old Testament. Lord Jesus, we lift up your name. You are holy. You are absolutely, utterly holy, and we want to always stand strong on your holiness and on your truth. We never want to be guilty of encouraging people to embrace sin, something that will destroy their souls on Judgment Day. Would you increase by the power of your Holy Spirit the holiness here in this church? We want to be a pure bride. By the power of your Holy Spirit, filled with love, filled with grace for each other, we want to overcome sexual immorality and character weaknesses and lack of love, Jesus. We want to be your pure and spotless bride here at Southland. And Lord, we want to have, we want to have a deep and, and deep reverence for your holiness and your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Encourage us in reading your scriptures and in understanding them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.